Today we conclude our series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government. We've been focusing all week on the Bureau of Prisons, part of the Justice Department. The Bureau's stated mission, in part, is to, quote, provide reentry programming to ensure inmates' successful return to the community. It talks about custody and care, not jails and guards. Does it ever succeed? Our next guest shows what's possible. He was convicted of manslaughter, did part of a sentence in Florence, Colorado's Supermax, and has returned to society and now works for juvenile sentencing reform. Eddie Ellis joins me in studio. Eddie, good to have you with us. Nice to be here, Tom. And just give us the brief outlines of your life that led to prison and back out of it. Okay, thank you. Uh, as, as a young person, I you know, was caught up around the wrong things uh, at times, and I ended up getting in trouble at the age of 16. Someone uh, pulled a gun on me, and uh, I had a gun, and I defended myself, and they unfortunately lost their life that day. And I take full responsibility uh, for what took place that day. You know, but as a 16-year-old child, I didn't understand what was taking place, what was happening. I was just confused about everything. You know, and as a child, I lost my father to gun violence. You know, and, and sometimes in these situations, hurt people can still hurt people. You know, and as a child, um, that's what ended up happening. Someone got hurt because of my actions. And so you were tried and convicted as a juvenile? Mm -mm, as an adult. That is to say you were juvenile age, but tried yes. and, and convicted as an adult. Yes, I was okay. 16 years old when I was arrested, and I was Title 16 and charged as an adult. And then what happened? Where were you sentenced to? I faced 75 years to life, uh, found guilty on, on manslaughter. And because of the victim impact statement, the judge ended up giving me 22 years instead of like 35, 40 years because the victim impact statement asked the judge to have leniency on us because we were children. And that's what the judge did. And I ended up serving 15 years in prison, seven years on parole. And I've been home since 2006. Now, you went to which prison initially? Initially, I went to D.C. jail. Then I went to Lorton when Lorton was still open in Lorton, Virginia. Then I was transferred to uh, Youngstown, Ohio, to a privatized prison there. They sent us back to Lorton, to the Supermax unit, where that was still open. Then I went to uh, Red Onion in Pound, Virginia. Then from Red Onion, I was sent to uh, the Supermax in Florence, Colorado. And yeah, then, what transpired to get you from there to Florence? Because that's where you know the really tough people go, and it's all day solitary, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, well, as D.C. prisons were closing, they were only able to send you to prisons that were still open. And if you had max custody on you, when you be sent out to other prisons, you continue to have that max status on you. And that's why I was sent to Red Onion. But over the years, I got in fights to defend myself and protect myself at times. But it was because I still had that max status on me and I was sent to Red Onion. And then from Red Onion, I was sent to uh, Supermax. And I stayed there uh, from 2000 to 2006. And I went to Lewisburg uh, for my last days, and, uh, and I came home. And how would you describe the experience in terms of the staff of prisons as a, for lack of a better word, their customer, their client, as an inmate? What's your overall experience there? I mean, they must vary a lot, but some guards did try to help, didn't they? Yeah, it, it, it varies. I, I, say, I always say this, you always have bad apples everywhere. Uh, but I met a few people there that worked there who were good people, who treated me like a human being. Understand that the bad choice that I made as a 16-year-old child didn't have anything to do with them. And they were professional enough to, you know, address me as a human. And I really appreciated that, you know. And I always talk about those in the system who, you know, I ran across who were good people. 
We're speaking with Eddie Ellis. He's a former Bureau of Prisons inmate, now director of outreach at the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth. And in the Supermax, I mean, that's a notorious place. Even the former warden has been on television over the years talking about it. We know some, you know, El Chapo is there and so forth, and some of the traitors to the country from the intelligence community and the FBI. And people are 23 hours locked up. And when you are outside, it's like in the bottom of a swimming pool, and there's lots of detail you can find out about that particular facility. But yet you found from the warden all the way down to some of the staff that there was caring, even in the Supermax? Yeah, I mean, you know, you have people in places that still can care despite the places that they're in. And uh, I just tried to just do my time and, you know, and deal with people, you know, when I needed to deal with them and I stayed out the way. And I just prepared myself because I knew that a prison couldn't change me. I had to change myself uh, in order to come out here in the world and, and do the things I'm doing today. So that's what I did. Any program that I was allowed to take, I took the programming, you know, started to change the way I read, who I communicated with, and I changed my life, you know. But uh, I tell people all the time, a prison is nothing but a building. And if you're sitting there without doing anything, you will not prepare yourself. But I prepared myself to be out here almost 17 years later. And in recent years, there has been statutory requirements from Congress for the Bureau to offer programs to make sure that people don't come back and try to help train them for life outside again. Was there any kind of programming in those days? No, not when I came home. I'm going to be honest with you. The program they gave me was banking skills, and I didn't have no money to put in no bank, so it was useless <laughs> to me. But I prepared myself. Like I said, I prepared myself the best way that I could have, uh, made sure my mom was in the right places. Again, continue to read things that was helping me prepare for the world as much as I can. Communicate with my family and loved ones about things that I wanted to do when I come home. And when I came home, that's what I did. I stayed on track, and I've been advocating for programs to go back in the federal prison and prisons to help people. Sure. And what's your best advice for prison staff, again, from the standpoint of an inmate, and we'll call it a client right now, because... The ones I've spoken to do have some sense of mission about this. They don't see the prisoners as undifferentiated masses either. I just say, you know, we understand that some people are there for choices they made and some people are not. Treat people like you want to be treated, you know, and, and that's it. Because the reality of prison is this. It's more of us inside of a jail than it is God's at any time. You know, and I tell people 90 percent of people in jail don't want to get in trouble again. You know, they don't. Sure. They, they want to do something different, you know, but it's environmental things that don't allow them things to happen sometimes. Just think about some people who are in the Federal Bureau of Prisons who were juveniles that sentenced to life without parole, right, who can't get certain programs in prisons because they got life without parole. But how do those people prepare themselves, right? Are we going to create opportunities for those people who were children, 17 and younger, to get an opportunity to come home? As long as we prepare people to come home, we're giving them the resources that they need. But if we're not giving them the resources, how do we expect people to do, you know, what most college kids can't do without resources? So the work you're doing is more upstream of the prison system itself in the area of sentencing and the deliverance of justice. Yeah, I think, you know, the work that we do is try to, you know, ban life without parole nationally for children that's 17 and younger. And with those bills as filed, we're not saying that, you know, children shouldn't be held accountable. But you know, appropriate accountability, right? And if a child make a horrible decision, they're not today now an adult. They're still a child. It's things that we can do, you know, to help, you know, in these situations. And, you know, we got almost a 1,000 people home, you know, that was sentenced to life without parole. 
you know, as children who are doing wonderful work. Sure. You know, I work with a lot of people across the country. I work with over 240 people who were sentenced to extreme sentences as children across the country who are doing wonderful work in the community. And, uh, and I feel like the work that we do, it makes us feel a part of the community. You know, it's something that we want to do. And so people could be sentenced as juveniles, and if they get parole in that sentencing, they are therefore in the federal prison system with a chance of getting out at some point. And that's what you feel where the delivery of these kinds of services, education, help to get them to that parole point and then stay out. Yes. As we know, education opened up another world for us. You know, and if we prepare them, you know, the way that we can as a system, you know, we can prepare them to come home in ways of going into jobs, to coming home and being law-abiding citizens, living their life however they choose to live it in a positive way. But again, if we're not putting resources there for them to do that, then it's kind of like talking out both sides of our head. We want the community to be safe, but yet we choose not to put the resources there to help a person prepare themselves. So, again, I prepared myself. The system didn't do it. And I'm proud of who I am with the support I've had. And um, I'm going to do the work that I'm doing to advocate, you know, until the day I die, you know. Eddie Ellis is a former Bureau of Prisons inmate, now Director of Outreach at the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview, along with all of the interviews in our series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. 
I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. Now, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or 
maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.